March of 2020, my students were asking if we were going to close school due to COVID. I said, no, it's not like we live in the snow belt. Then it was March 13th, schools closed, and the way we do school changed forever. On this show, we're going to talk about the ways in which schools and community have had to pivot and continue to pivot in a constantly changing reality. This is Pivot. Good afternoon. My name is Janie Ulmer and I'm here with Pivot. In the studio today, I have three distinguished guests. I'm going to let them go around the table and introduce themselves. And also, I want you to talk about, as we get to you, your very first classroom uh, assignment. We'll start with you. Hi, I'm Janet Chandler and my first classroom assignment at Hamilton Southeastern or before? Wherever you would like to begin. Okay, I started in a junior high that was open space and I taught French and English. And the English room was in a large room where each classroom had a corner of it. And then we had an open area in the middle that sometimes kids were in. It was very loud. Then my French room was in a square that had walls that they you can run around the perimeter of them and also go through the middle of them. And so my first memory is hearing the Spanish teacher next door to me go, Marguerite, Marguerite, all the time. <laughs> my name is Tom Yance. I'm the ag teacher. And my first experience is the room I just walked out of about five minutes ago. I started here in 77. And I'm still in the same room. And uh, the uh, first experience I had in my room is we had windows and a door. So it was really easy to take the students outside because nothing was built around me at that time. And we could walk right across 126th Street in about four steps because a real narrow road. And we could be in a field working on seed identification or plant identification or soil judging and uh, it was pretty neat at that point in time and i really liked it because i noticed that almost every day now there's sirens <laughs> and when we first started there was hardly ever a siren and if there was a siren you probably ought to get out of the building because they were probably <laughs> coming our way <laughs> oh, that's great uh, my name is Greg Habegger. Um, I started in the fall of 1989, and my first assignment in the social studies department was teaching U.S. history, Native American history, and Russian history. Um, was not necessarily qualified to teach Russian history, but we made our way through it. As I understand it, Ms. Chandler was my department chair at that time. Um, teacher that was there doing that job, loved it but uh, then retired or left or something. And I inherited that class load. So it wasn't my favorite assignment that I had, but it was a, a wonderful experience to be at Hamilton Southeastern. And it still is. Absolutely. <laughs> well, the reason I asked your first teaching assignment is that this episode is called Back in the Day. And the, the idea for this episode started when Greg and I were out at a tennis match and we were exchanging stories about back in the day. 
and I was reminding him of a time when it was very exciting as a math teacher to get a new pack of vis-a-vis markers for my overhead projector. And I was so excited. They had the fresh tip and I could use the different colors. And it was like, oh, this is going to be a good day. I thought that was a pretty great story until Greg shared his story. So I'm going to let you uh, take the take the mic. Well, my first year uh, teaching here, um, I needed to make copies for a class I had. So I went to the little office, little workstation that we had um, and wanted to use the, the ditto machine. If you don't know what a ditto machine, it was a way to make rapid copies, but it was not a copy machine. I don't know the technology, but papers came out. They were purple. The, the lettering or the, the type was purple. They smelled really good. I don't know if that was <laughs> alcohol, what that was, but it was. It just smelled really good. So um, as I was making copies, it ran out of paper. And so I emptied or, excuse me, unwrapped a, a new ream of paper and walked over to the machine. It had kind of a, uh, if you could picture maybe like a, upside down a whistle, you know, it had a flat end to it and then a round end on the, on the backside on the flat part was where you loaded the paper and you had to push down the tray it was kind of spring loaded and slide the ream of paper in. What I didn't know is that I should have turned it off <laughs> because as soon as the paper loaded, it picked up and started again. And as I was leaning over and putting the paper in my necktie <laughs> was laying on top of the paper and as it began to run, it grabbed my tie and I was pulled into the machine and I was stuck. Uh, luckily, there were a couple staff members in the room who, after they picked themselves up off the floor from laughing, they came to my rescue. Susie Wong, who taught in the math department here, and then Bob Greenman, who was in the science department, were there to help rescue me. I really intended to bring the tie with me because I still have it. It was not ruined. It had some ink marks on the backside, but nothing on the front. So I'm very proud of that tie. I've taken many ties to Goodwill, but I cannot part with that one for that very reason. It's a trophy to my educational career. I love it. As we were preparing for this podcast today and that story, we had a conversation about the difference between a ditto machine and a mimeograph machine. Ms. Chandler, I'm going to let you follow up on that conversation. Well, the ditto machine, as Greg said, it worked off of a stencil. And so you had uh, basically you can write on it or type on it with a typewriter, which we had in the building at that time, mm -hmm. and made the purple copies. The mimeograph made black copies. And the rule was you had to make, I think, at least 50 copies to use the mimeograph machine. And um, I never did use it. I, I used the ditto machine, but it, it, was, it sounded like machine gun fire. <laughs> And then eventually we got a copy machine that was locked up in the vault and the, sec the principal secretary controlled it and <laughs> department heads, one of our responsibilities was to monitor the number of copies that people made and you were allowed 300 a month and we had to keep a little chart on how many copies everybody was using. Tom, do you uh, remember those days? Yeah, I remember those days when you had all those purple and they stuck and they stained and you had it all over your fingers and you could, it was about like tattoo ink. <laughs> and you know, it was just, everything was multiple and you, it was, everything was so heavy because you had to have a ream of this and you had a ream of that and you had to carry that stuff around. And it was just like, you know, your room got built up around the, 
sides because you had all these supplies that, you know, whether you'd ever use them or not, but you got them at one time and we had to keep them through the end of the year because you didn't get to go back and get any more. They had said, come on down and get your supply for the year. And you just kind of had to kind of, you know, make sure that you uh, planned really well on how many papers you're going to use in the copiers and all that. As the supplies were kept in the vault also. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Paper clips, that kind of thing. So we've all been in education a long time. If you had a chance to go and talk to a college class of future educators, what piece of advice would you have for those, those new teachers? I think you have to be flexible and you have to be ready for anything. You know, no one teaches you like how to collect money for a field trip or anything of that nature. Um, you know, instead you're learning about Piaget and different educational theories that um, are nice, but they don't necessarily apply when you're in the trenches. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I guess when I, if I was going back and I do go back to Purdue once in a while or wherever I go to talk and I tell them, I said, you know, when you're teaching ag, you've got three things to do. You got to teach ag. Then you got to coach judging teams. And then you got to raise money so you can go on the trips. And that was not talked about in teacher college. They never said anything about, well, how are you going to pay? Because when I started, there wasn't much money, so you had to raise money. So fundraising's always been probably in my DNA because we just had to raise all the money to go on all the trips because the principal wasn't going to give you any money <laughs> and you just had to have money to be able to go. So, you know, it was like those three parts of teaching ag. That's, that's the way it is. And if you want to do anything, if you want to be active chapter and do some things, you got to be able to do those three. That's good. You know, it's been over 20 years since I've been in the classroom because I was a dean of students for six and now athletic director. But as I think back to, to preparation for college, I or excuse me, for teaching, I remember when I got here being almost half offended that I was treated or I was considered the rookie or the new guy because I thought I knew everything. <laughs> and, and, boy, you find out really quick that experience is the absolute best preparation for anything, just having gone through it before and being in this situation or having that kind of student in your classroom. So I think I would encourage myself if I could go back and talk to me or to other students is to come in with some humility, understand that you don't know everything and that the experience you gain is going to be really, really important. I, I would add one more thing too, just in, in watching um, the veteran teachers who I think are the best at what they do I think they, you know, we're royals here at HSE, and we talk about being a royal. And I'm sure most schools use their mascot in the same way, but I really think for us what that means is you are, you are vested in everything that goes on in this building. You come watch kids in the musical and the play and athletics. You, you volunteer when there's a need in the cafeteria or wherever that may be, and you, just, you step up and do. And, yes, classroom education, or that, that's a big part of what we all do, but – the whole culture of your building revolves around people getting involved and in, in bleeding blue, as we talk about here in the building. And I think you're onto something there because we are called to this work. 
um, this is not just a job for us, but we are, we're here to work for kids. We all want the same things. And so there is a culture that comes along with that. And I would encourage new teachers to get involved in that culture. You will, you will not find a greater group of people to work alongside than, than teachers and in, in support staff in education. Can we go back to the vis-a-vis markers? <laughs> did you go home then with hands that were different colors each night based on what you did in the classroom? So, so not just hands, but my entire arms. Um, I, I would always have errands to run. I'd go to the bank and not realize that I had equations written up and down my arm because sitting on the overhead. I happen to love the overhead. I thought it was great to be in front of the kids, being able to have eye contact and just write out equations and solve problems. And it, it was, it was awesome. We did shadow puppets, all that fun stuff on the overhead. Um, so we all have seen a lot of changes in schools since we started. And, and some of those changes have been, you know, I miss some of the things of the old days, but there are a lot of things that have changed for good. So let's talk about some changes that you have seen that are good for kids since we started back in the day. I think technology has to be the number one. When I came to Southeastern in 1979, we had no computers in the school. And we had two teachers in our building who were trying to persuade the school board to buy computers. And the school board just wasn't sure that this would be something that would be used. And so when we finally got them, it was actually in my, in the room that I was in, I, I started teaching in the lecture hall here, not the current lecture hall, but one that used to be a lecture hall until they decided it would be a computer lab. And they came in and, you know, took out the, they had brought a jackhammer in actually on the last day of school when I was still trying to do my grades uh, to start tearing the room down to be the computer lab for the Radio Shack TRS-80s. We all had to go to Castleton to get a training on how to program the thing, <laughs> which I never used. And then we eventually merged to Apple IIe's, you know, and then we just, you know, kind of kept changing. But, you know, that was just, you know, I think technology is just amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I was growing up, you know, you had to wait for your parents to take you to the library to do any kind of report or anything. And now it's just at kids' fingertips or Absolutely. in their pocket because it's on their phone. Absolutely. I guess, you know, when I think about Southeastern, it's the growth and the opportunities that the students have today are so much more than what they were, you know, when we first started. I mean, they were just, you know, they had math and they had science and, you know, but today a student can walk, if a student doesn't walk out of here today with some college credits, something's wrong i mean they just in the classes that we offer today are oh my gosh i didn't know we do that you know i you know i didn't know we taught this and we had that so the opportunities for kids to get college credit take classes that a lot of small schools since i sat on the school board at eastern hancock for a long time and while we were growing at warp speed eastern hancock stayed at the same size they were pretty much when I graduated in 72. So here it is 40 plus years later. And it's just, I mean, it, it just gave the students so much more, you know, chances, exposure. The other thing was that it brought in a lot more people and, 
you know, I remember in the early 80s when we won our, our first state football championship, and now there's so many students that's won track championships and soccer championships and softball championships and all those things is, alludes to what Greg talked about. It's like, oh, my gosh. I mean, we win and win and win, whether it's we the people or it's FFA, it just gives a lot of students, a lot more students, the opportunity to excel in whatever they go into. So I think that's been a huge change is seeing those students be able to go and see and do. And I guess the other thing is we, the principal, Miss Janie's talked about it, was that, uh, that, you know, the people you're around, I mean, it just, who would have thought that we'd be able to see people come to our, like Sam Ryan coming in and talking about genetics. And, and when you have government officials come in and talk and the, the mayor of Fishers, I mean, having those people and the students seeing them up close and personal. So I just think that, you know, with a big school comes big opportunities. Absolutely. Thank you. I think just to, to piggyback off that, I, I think of what I've watched, it hasn't been a, a, a great big change, but there, in some ways there has been where uh, support and the, uh, all the, the parent involvement here has been tremendous. You know, we, we laugh sometimes as we hire coaches in the athletic office. Our standard line is that, you know, one of the best things about Hamilton Southeastern is that we have really involved parents one of the worst things about Hamilton Southeastern <laughs> is we have really involved parents, but we say that tongue in cheek because coaches that have been other places and then come here, look at us like you guys have no idea what you have here at HSE. You got moms and dads who care moms and dads whose expectations may be borderline unrealistic, but at least they are high and they are trying to promote excellence with their kids, whether it be academic or music or, or athletics. So, I, you know, we weren't a rural school necessarily. When I came, I think, Tom or, or Janet, we had about 700, 750 students in, in the high school, obviously one high school. Um, but it still had a little bit of a rural feel to it, certainly different than it is now. But I do think that's just something I've seen evolve is that, that uh, the expectations continue to get greater, but it, I think it drives our kids to be at their best. I think the biggest change that I have seen um, in a – has a lot to do with technology is is the fact that we don't let kids give up unless we've tried every single thing we can um, back in the day we had our grade book on paper and students found out that they were failing a course at the end of the grading period when they got the report card you know there wasn't an instant access to their grades and you know it, it's the grade they got was the grade they got and and off they went now we have so many supports in place to make sure that students have everything they need in order to be successful. And I, and I love that progress in education overall, um, that we're committed to student achievement. So I just want to thank the three of you for taking time out of your busy day today to reminisce a little bit. Um, Greg, I want to see that tie. Absolutely, okay? yep. Definitely want to see that tie. Um, thank you all. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks.